0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Game Audio Hour, a fortnightly podcast where we discuss all things game audio. From creative ideas to the latest techniques, project experiences, to audio secrets, here is where you'll find in-depth coverage and opinions related to game audio. You'll also find me, Vincent Diamante, because that's... Me. Uh, I I need to work on that intro a bit, don't I? It's like, ah, it just cuts off right there, and then I have to go into another intro. Uh, After a couple years, I think I've just started to get a little bit annoyed at the little nooks and crannies that exist in this thing that has remained really steadfast and solid, or maybe more than solid, solid even, over the last Oh my god has it been seven or eight years something like that
1: uh, ah yeah, i don't it's know been a long time a long yeah time.
0: it's been way too long um alex how are you doing over there
1: i'm okay you know what i think you should do you should just you should just condense it because by now hopefully people will know what they're listening to here so you can just say vince game audio talk <laughs> go <laughs> green light begin commence discussion." And then I think that maybe that will be fine. No, anyway, uh, I am fine. Thank you very much, Vince. It's great to be here again with you this, uh, this day, uh, all things considered. Um, in the world right now, uh, it's wonderful to be uh, having the opportunity to sit here in a peaceful room and chat with you about uh, wonderful things, music, sound effects, game, audio, and everything in between.
0: Yeah, it's uh, always good to do that. Just sort of think about all the cool things that are happening uh, in this space, and there are definitely some cool things. Uh, I feel like this last week has been kind of fun because the last two days have actually been sort of a, a duo of music and games. You know how in Japan people like to play around with the the sounds of names and mm. make that into, oh, that means now that this is the day that we celebrate this thing. Um, mm. So, March 9th, uh, 3-9, uh, there were a lot of people uh, posting either fan art or Link's uh, favorite songs for a beloved Japanese media character known as Hatsune Miku. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, are, are you a fan of that at all, Alex?
1: No. No? Uh, that was quick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, unfortunately not. Um, I think when it comes to um, well, there's the, the famous Hatsune Miku um, pedal. Have you seen that guitar oh, yeah. pedal? That, yeah. I <laughs> That's think when it comes cool. to when it comes to virtual idols, I think we reached the pinnacle in um, that Japanese anime series Macross Plus. That uh, with the with that amazing amazing soundtrack by Yoko Kano. Um, which we've talked about numerous times before, on and off air. Uh, I think that the that virtual idol that was in that original Macross Plus series. I think I think we sort of reached the zenith point of virtual idols right there, and then that's been downhill since. So Hatsune huh. Miku, I guess, is probably a few decades after Macross Plus. I would I would guess, and so uh, yeah, I guess we can extrapolate the uh, the social and artistic relevance. I guess I've insulted. Quite a lot of people just now by uh, you know blasphemously suggesting that Hatsune Miku is not the uh, pinnacle of uh, uh, yeah I I think I think I'll just stop now before I insult any more people but anyway what do you think of Hatsune Miku Vince? Um, Man, uh, I mean
0: I think it's interesting. You know Hatsune Miku actually was not the uh, initial point of that whole Vocaloid thing. You know using the computer and programs to synthesize a voice. Um, mm. It actually came a little bit afterwards. I actually thought maybe you might be into it or might have played around with it because that underlying Vocaloid technology was actually Yamaha tech, and you're definitely ah. a Yamaha person, right? Um, I mean, you no, I'm a Steinberg camp. person. Well, you are in the Steinberg camp, though.
1: I, I, yes, Steinberg is true. owned by Yamaha. Yeah, that, um, I guess that's that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, <laughs> oh, those <laughs> you, you big got me. Japanese
0: monolith, yeah, megalithic companies. Um, but um,
1: wow, Yamaha. Yeah, Yamaha in itself is is a just nuts. Like every they do so many things, and they do in most cases across the board. They do it exceptionally well. Like you think of their musical instrument operation, their you know um, uh, motorcycles, and they also make motorboat motorboat uh, uh, engines and pianos and yeah, I think the, it's it's a crazy company. It's hard to find like a common thread between all of the amazing things that they do so well. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah. I guess Vocaloid te- voice synthesis technology is yet another one of their uh, uh, lesser known areas of uh, of technological prowess. Yeah, it is pretty cool. Honestly, like when
0: I first heard about it, was actually not even thinking about Japan media at all. Uh, I was actually at my local music shop. It was called West LA Music. It's been gone now for a decade or actually maybe even 15 years now. It's been gone for a while. But basically Mm. my local music shop had some representatives from Vocaloid talking about it. And they had uh, a couple of um, different programs that they were showing. I think one of them was called Lola. You know, Vocaloid Mm -hmm. Lola. And it was really cool. Yeah, it was a female soul singer vocal, and the counterpart to vocal Leon uh, was originally released in two thousand four. Hmm. So yeah, this was back in the Vocaloid one days, and it was really interesting tech. I mean, the whole idea behind it was, hey, you could have a vocal singer in your computer as uh, a backup vocalist, hmm. um, and could do some stuff, uh, but. The funny thing about it was that that wasn't the original point of it. Uh, in Japan, it was more, hey, we need to have some sort of way to represent the lyrics for this song before we get it in the hands of an actual
1: singer. Like um, a placeholder.
0: Yeah, that was their, this is going to be placeholder. And then that way, singers and artists and repertoire can actually check out these songs and best figure out what the fit is. Oh, we're going to get this talent for this song now, as opposed to just listening to um, a less fleshed out version of the tune. Wow! So it was a little different in Japan versus in America, where they were really trying to push it. Hey, we're going to sell you Lola and Leon, and now you have these backup vocalists who can record For your song, where maybe if that's not what your song is about, maybe it's actually more an electronic dance track or something. They can actually be front and center. This is a production-ready piece of software. Mm. And then now the Vocaloid phenomenon, though, the way we know it is, hey, you've got these voices that are instruments and performers in and of themselves and they have fan bases. You know, Hatsune Miku has a fan base, and then there are other that are lesser known, things like um, Ia, and gosh, I mean, there's just so many that are out there, some of them based on somewhat famous artists, and now these virtual versions, virtual singers have their own fan bases, making fan art, writing music, and it's, it's an interesting world. It's its own little... Yeah, its own economy, its own community, its own uh, huge space of of knowledge that uh, is actually kind of scary to dive into because it's it's interesting, uh, it's really interesting, but there's already stuff like a canon of music for Vocaloid and mm. uh, different things that you have to learn about how to write. For the Vocaloid voice, which is very different from writing for a singer because it's, it's not quite a synth and it's not quite a voice. It's a little bit of both and some other totally different things as well. And apparently that also changes between all the different versions of Vocaloid. Uh, when I first started playing with Vocaloid, I actually used Vocaloid version 2. And I think right now they're on Vocaloid 5. And there's been improvements in workflow and different features. and um, The Vocaloid music production world almost feels like its own thing. And even though I dipped my toe in that world five, ten years ago, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm going to sit back and just watch the other kids uh, make all sorts of cool stuff there.
1: On our um, Space Folk City soundtrack that we collaborated on, one of the songs that you did has a female voice in it. Is, was that Vocaloid? No, that wasn't. That was,
0: um, let me think about this. That was not Vocaloid. Oh, I know what it was. It was done by the Gravity guys, actually. So okay. it was actually a contact library that I got. Oh, right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I have to, I have to confess that um, over my, I don't know, I guess, Thirty-five years that I've been sort of sensitive to, really, really listening to music. Um, I'm a relative novice when it comes to uh, music with vocals in it, which is a really strange thing to say as somebody who just generally enjoys all music. But you know, I grew up being surrounded by basically, you know, game music and ga- obviously the game music—the eight-bit and then the sixteen-bit era game music. Not mu- not much in the way of uh, vocal vocal performances there and then sort of move from there to demo scene music and then uh, demo scene to straight into the, um, the, the 90s and the kind of golden era of, uh, of techno. And mm-hmm. um, the, the kind of techno that I was always into was never really um, sort of vocal techno or anything like that. It was just purest techno or electro. And if you have a voice in those tracks, it'll usually be just basically trying to sound like a robot um and so i sort of came other than you know um uh some pop music here and there and i i guess things like abba and things like that which were always playing around my my house i never really had that much broad exposure to the capabilities of the human voice in music which is a really really strange thing to say when you think about it because obviously the human voice is the oldest, (laughs) the oldest, literally the oldest musical instrument that we have Um, uh, and such a a foundation and a centre point of all kind of musical expression. It's obviously a funny thing to think that I would, you know, be able to say that I'm just not very familiar with music, with vocals in it. But, um, yeah, really only in the past, uh, I guess, 20 years, I suppose, is when I've started to become much more sensitive and much more Observant and interested in the capabilities of the human voice. And so I guess I'm not yet at the point where, for me personally, voice synthesis for musical purposes uh, is, you know, extremely intriguing or, you know, piques my curiosity. Um, So it is interesting to hear about, you know, the developments that go on in that area. And obviously, um, those, the the kinds of applications that they can have for our work in uh, doing game sound as well. that is aside from like synthesizing voices for speech, but actually voices in music as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, last year, I actually was going through a process where it seemed like maybe it would be beneficial for me to actually use Vocaloid. I actually have Vocaloid software. Uh, But in the end, what I ended up doing was just calling a friend and saying, hey, can you just record a quick uh, placeholder track uh, for this? Uh, Mm. Because Vocaloid is cool, it's powerful, but it's not quite as quick as just going to a friend or barring that, just hiring a session vocalist somewhere and saying, hey, I, I need this quick. This would be really great. Um, this is just temp vocals, and I'm just trying to figure out where the sound is going to be. I'm going to. I'm working with this producer that's going to be working with uh, some other potential artist, and we need to match that up. That was a lot easier for me than uh, working with the Vocaloid software itself and all its limitations when it comes to representing the human voice in. All of its amazing capability because the yeah. human
1: voice is awesome. It's a kind of a a kind of a, a tricky part of the market to exist in, I would imagine, because when you think about a sample library for you know a, an instrument, let's say you know like something arbitrary like the violin, you know if you if you don't play violin but you're a game audio composer and you need a violin for. Putting into some kind of temp track or for a final score, it makes perfect sense to um, you know to use a sample library and spend all that time in you know properly programming it to make it sound as realistic, realistic as possible. Simply because the violin, like all musical instruments, is a specific craft that is you know that is perfected by violinists, and therefore the, the bar is very very high in terms of. Putting something into a, into a track. On the other hand, vocals and singing, it seems to me to be like a, a, a difficult business model to try and justify. I mean, obviously, it has been justified, hence the existence of things, something like Vocaloid. But because, you know, as you're saying there, if the original purpose was to have some kind of placeholder vocal track before you had made any decisions about Suitability of candidates for an actual final version of the vocal recording. Like, compared to, say, a violin or any one of the other instruments that, you know, we use sample libraries for, it seems like, relatively speaking, a vocal placeholder track would be easier to set up just because singing is something that, you know, all people have a, almost regardless of culture, we sort of have a a general baseline of experience with basic singing, just, you know, it's part of human existence, really, Um, says the guy who just admitted that he's not very sensitive to vocals in music. (laughs) But, uh, um, yeah, it seems like a difficult business model to justify when you consider that it's not that hard to, you know, just sing a part yourself for a placeholder purpose or, as you said, call up a um, a vocalist or somebody that you know that has a good – a decent uh, amount of ability for for singing a basic line and getting them to do something. Yeah, it seems, I mean, obviously the business model has been justified because here we have Vocaloid, but um, yeah, it's curious, isn't it? Like it it doesn't seem, if you're all that time that you would spend in trying to get Vocaloid to sound semi-natural, you would think that you could probably save, you know, a, a few hours by just calling up a vocalist's and saying, hey, would you mind just singing this part for me?
0: I've actually been going through some of this news here. I mentioned that right now, Yamaha is on Vocaloid 5, which has been stable like for the last two years, and presumably there will be a Vocaloid 6 in the future. Hatsune hmm. Miku is not on Vocaloid 5. Uh, you know, All of these characters and the voices themselves they're not actually done by Yamaha. Like Yamaha and Vocaloid is sort of like the underlying playback synthesis algorithms. Oh, I see. And then the actual voices are made by all sorts of different companies. So all right. Hatsune Miku is made by Krypton Future Media. Okay, And That's I cool guess <laughs> it, it is pretty cool. Uh, they actually have Hatsune Miku and they've actually stated that Hatsune Miku – is not going to be on Vocaloid in the future. Like, they're trying to develop their own thing, which is Uh. really interesting. And it does make me wonder what this means. Like, Yamaha and Vocaloid, they've really been trying to continue developing that software to make it more powerful, to make it more realistic. And Hatsune Miku is interesting because she is a stable character and a stable sound in this sort of world of music production that's always pushing forward. Mm. So I'm not sure exactly what this means. I mean, I'm not really embedded in that whole vocaloid community, but I think Mm. it is really interesting thinking about uh, what does it mean to have a sound, have Hatsune Miku as as sort of this thing that is not... A Voice and it's not a synth, it's somewhere in between. But maybe we actually do sort of treat it like a synth. Oh, mm. this is Hatsune Miku. Uh, maybe that strikes people in the same way that someone might say, Oh, that's totally a JP8000. Right. Yeah. That, think... is, that is totally a super saw versus, Oh, mm. no, oh, that's totally this specific Korg pad because, you know, Korg Wave Station has pads like that, you know?
1: Mm. Maybe um, uh, it smells like something a bit legal might be happening there with Yamaha and the creators of Hatsune Miku because if Yamaha provides the underlining technology and Hatsune Miku is not going to appear in the latest version of Vocaloid, it sounds like perhaps the the actual creators, if they are owning the intellectual property for Hatsune Miku, Hatsune Miku has a, obviously a it's it's a brand now, right? You know, it's a it has a, its own. I guess, potential value as a brand. And I suppose the original creators are wanting to do, stretch out beyond just the confines of Vocaloid into other areas. I mean, if they made a guitar pedal, I mean, <laughs> that's probably an indication that there's, there's sort of branding potential um, further out uh, beyond just being a Vocaloid preset.
0: Man, this guitar pedal, it's, it's made by Korg. It's like chord okay. Miku wow. stop effect pedal, wow, and and, and uh, it's really funny. You just sort of uh, there's a little uh, knob on there where you could basically uh, change the types of syllables that Miku will say. You know, you know, you're playing your guitar into that, but it's like scat, loo, la, ah, pa, nya, um, and then random and phrases. It's like wow. <laughs> You can still get this, this Miku stomp effect. You could oh god, hold on. No, you cannot get it new. They are oh. used. Do you wanna guess what the price is on these things?
1: I'm gonna guess it's it's actually uh rather surprisingly high. <laughs> you would be
0: correct. It's uh I'm looking at things that are five hundred, six hundred, and seven hundred
1: dollars. Wow. That is expensive <laughs> for a gimmick. <laughs> I mean I mean, well, I'm sorry if I've offended any artists out there who use the Korg Hatsune Miku pedal for uh, pushing the boundaries of artistic expression, but uh, that's very, very expensive, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is a little, (laughs) that seems a little much, but Mm. hey, cool. Um, (laughs) Maybe we should uh, move a little bit off this topic just because we've been dwelling on this for a while and we're not, we are not. Hatsune Miku experts, but Vocaloid no. is cool and yes, 2 days ago uh was in fact March 9th. So the first of this sort of game music duo because uh, after March 9th comes March 10th and uh that's commonly referred to as Mario Day because M A R 10 for Mario. I see. Uh, so yeah, a lot of gamers out there in full force showing their love and devotion for, the, for that lovable Nintendo uh, property game character. It's A. Hey, uh, we got some cool news because Super Nintendo Land is going to be opening in Universal Studios in America. It's been mm-hmm. open for a while in Japan, but it will be in Hollywood um, or just north of hollywood uh next year 2023 so that's kind of cool wow yeah c- ha- have you actually seen any videos of people at super nintendo land in japan
1: no i haven't why what's the what's the what's the story there
0: well a couple of people have been telling me that this is literally the best interactive theme park experience they've ever had oh, really? so there's a lot of things that you can do uh one of the things that you do on entering the park is you wear this wrist bracelet mm. and then with that you can do various things interacting with various objects that are strewn around the park you know in super mario world or actually going back to super mario brothers um, you know, one of the common mechanics is just jumping up and hitting a block on the underside in order to see what happens. So yep. maybe a coin will come out, maybe uh, a mushroom will come out, or a fire flower, or whatever. Um, and apparently, that's a mechanic that's sort of strewn throughout the park in Japan. And you can punch these bricks and hit them either on the side or from underneath, and you get these points that you can collect, uh, and it shows on your on your bracelet and you can go to various places in the park in order to basically see your progress and redeem them for cool things that will happen in other places, in other events or uh, park rides. So Mm. that's pretty cool. I've been to a couple of different amusement parks over the years. I live in L.A., or LA adjacent, so I've been to places like Universal Studios and Disneyland, of course. So it's Mm. always cool to see some new uh, mechanics being employed in a theme park, and this sounds really cool. I'm not the hugest Nintendo fan, but i got to admit, when I hear people talking about this and when I see videos of this, I'm really intrigued and excited to try it out.
1: What's your um, uh, experience with... Scoring music or sound effects or or game audio production for arcade games and location-based entertainment, Vince I've
0: never done theme parks Um, I understand Mm. that that's actually a thing that a lot of video game people are doing these days uh, Especially as rides become more and more interactive You know, I have a couple friends that are over at Hexity for example and a really good game audio outfit and they did some stuff for Disneyland, specifically for things in Star Wars land, like the, the Millennium Falcon ride and, and stuff like wow. that. And so they're doing all this interactive audio stuff there for interactive rides. I haven't mm. quite done that. The things that I've done have been arcade games. And right. um, it's been a much simpler sort of target there. The, the point with that is uh, be loud and Mm. be heard above other things. So, man, I mean, the Japanese arcade audio tradition is uh, something that really points back to all the old stuff because everything is built on these old standards. Mm. Um, The Japan arcade standard, uh, JAMA, as it's commonly known, is something from the 80s. And from there, they said, hey, yes, you can have audio. It comes out of here at level ready to drive an unamplified speaker, just like a bare speaker with its wires connected into the motherboard. Mm. Uh, So we're not really asking for anything that can create sort of nuance. Instead, it just has to hit. And it has to hit hard. So that's kind of what I've been thinking whenever I'm doing fighting games, which is what Mm -hmm. I've done in the arcade world. And even in America, it's kind of a similar thing just because of the culture that exists there uh, where it's not necessarily arcades, but actually the culture specifically around bring your own box. So Mm -hmm. guys coming in with, hey – Here's my console. Here's an LCD display. Let's just set up and start playing. Mm. And uh, those speakers that are, that are outfitted inside of an LCD, you know, LCDs are getting smaller and thinner. So, you know, those things aren't going to be any more capable than that, you know, unpowered 5-inch driver uh, on top of a... On top of a CRT in, in an old school style arcade cabinet. So hmm. it's kind of a similar thing there. How can you make sounds that are communicative and hit hard?
1: Yeah. 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 It's, um, um, when I was in Japan, I had, um, I think I did one, two, three. I think it might've been three or four um, arcade games when I was in Japan and we were working in um uh with vr arcade games and because at that stage this is this was uh, what 6 7 or 8 years ago um uh and at that stage in the progression of uh uh of the vr industry um uh location based entertainment vr applications was was the main most lucrative market the most lucrative area in japan at least at the time to be working in and so um Yeah, we had a lot of uh, – the company that I was working at, we we did a lot of these kinds of uh, arcade games for Japanese clients. And in some cases, there would be, you know, um, the player with headphones. Uh, Headphones were usually a little less common because it's Mm. just yet another thing that the player has to put on. So um, there was – one of the the more fun ones I did was one that I actually did together with um, our – our very own Michael Shapiro. Uh, he did the music and I did the, um, the the sound effects and all the audio implementation for that. That one was really fun because in that one the player would stand in the middle of basically um, it was just within the stereo field of these two big speakers. So they would stand in the middle and there would just be a left and a right blasting mm-hmm. at the soundtrack out as, lo- as loud as you could make it. Um, and Mike's uh, orchestral score was brilliant but Unfortunately, I doubt anybody really heard it because because in a Japanese arcade, there's just this this noise floor, which is ridiculous. So in in mastering that, obviously, you know, we just we just squashed the living life out of it and make it as compressed as possible so that you can just really just talk about the loudness war. I mean, you're just slamming, slamming the waveform with signal just to try and, you know, get something out there. <laughs> yeah, obviously, dynamic yeah. range. What's that? <laughs> no, exactly. That's right. Oh. Sound effects. Obviously, you want transients. You know, because you have yeah. music, which is just a slammed block of of noise. So, if you want sound effects to cut through that, um, transients are your friends. And uh, of course, uh, sound effects. You see, it, more so than music, especially orchestral music, such as what uh, Mike was making. Um, sound effects is obviously much easier to incorporate transients with sound effects than it is with uh, orchestral music. Um, but that was sort of the the, uh, the modus operandi was okay: slam the music and have the uh, have the sound effects consist of as many pops and you know transients as you could possibly fit in.
0: <laughs> That's cool. Uh, I yeah. to those VR places. It's really sad that actually over the last year, because of you know the current global situation, that many of those places have been uh, closing down. Uh, mm. VR places like that specific adores in Shibuya, where right. you could actually play that uh, ghost hunting game. That right. place is now down, um, and yep. it's not just the VR places; also game centers throughout Japan have been closing over the last few years um it's a real, either that um, or changing hands and
1: it's tough yeah yeah it's a, it's a real um it's a sad loss i think for for the game industry and for games as a you know as a an entertainment art form it's a very sad loss isn't it really the, the the death of the of the arcade i think in japan japan has sort of held on to that tradition for so much longer than um western cities where you know it the, the video game arcade really was uh, i guess around the late 90s early 2000s i suppose from from 2000 onwards i was in japan so i don't really know what was happening in at least in australia where i grew up um mm-hmm. do, what's the in america where at what point did, did the video game arcade start to fall away well
0: uh, over here there's definitely the the dedicated entertainment centers, but then there's also the arcades and malls, and I feel like the death of the mall in America has sort of ushered in the the death of the arcade over here as well. Oh, I see. So you know, uh, malls are. It used to be that malls were this big thing. Hey, yeah, we're going to this mall. Um, I lived on the East Coast uh, in D.C., but when mm. I was in high school. And I was very fond of going specifically to these malls in Springfield, Virginia and Landmark. Uh, They were the places that actually had many of my favorite games uh, earlier than everyone else. Hey, Mm. Samurai Showdown 3 is coming out. Okay, what arcade? Uh, And this was back in the day, so I would be looking at newsgroups. Uh, trying to find uh, news of where these arcades uh, where these arcade games will be showing up and oh landmark okay i can drive like 30 miles in order to get there yes and, and i made it um but those malls uh you know the malls eventually went away and the arcades with it too so mm. I, I feel like that is a, a big factor in that discussion
1: yeah it's it's a sad thing isn't it because i, I also remember um what was it in Adelaide? It was uh, Time Zone. That's it. Mm. Time Zone. And they had the... Um, uh, Time Zone had the virtue Fighter machines out the front. And if you go down the back, you go past the pinball machines. And then there was the Street Fighter kind of area. And I think there was Mortal Kombat down there as well. Uh, and then on the other side, they had this division. And then on the other side, they had all of the shooter games like... Um, Raystorm and Raiden and uh, Twin Cobra for a while was there, I think, and um, yeah, it was. You know, remember all those little traditions, like you know, you come in and you, if you want to play the game next, you put your. I guess in America it would have been a quarter, but in Australia yeah. it was like a a twenty cent coin in those days, and then later on a one dollar coin. You put it on the on the what what do you call it on the the ridge of the yeah. of the screen. Uh, to, to sort of show people that you were going to play next it was a it was a wonderfully sort of social kind of experience wasn't it because you had the you remember gauntlet as well which was like a this mm. amazing like the fact that yeah. you could play this video game with four people and it crowded around shoulder to shoulder <laughs> you know at this, it, at this cabinet
0: was, yeah i love that those four player games uh uh let's see you know t- Even the two-player games, especially when they're cooperative, I'm I'm immediately Mm. thinking about uh, games like Space Lord, which was a really great uh, Atari game where Mm. one person would play as the pilot and he also had a gun. But also another person could uh, move another secondary targeting reticle around the screen. And so Mm. you're co-oping playing this space simulator. And then three-player games, four-player games – uh, Six-player games were those things that were double-wide. Um, I'm thinking about X-Men. <laughs> and mm, you could play wow. as six different characters. And uh, it was really cool. Um, but, yeah, it's – you know, you mentioned that tradition about the coins. And, yeah, coins eventually gave way to cards. But even then, people were putting their cards up on the marquee or – like down on the bottom of the display in order to show yeah. that they've got next. But
1: I always, um, always used to feel it was a little bit of a shame that in the Japanese arcades, you know, they had these these machines where you don't actually see the other player. They're sitting on the other side, so you know, you're both looking at a CRT, but you can't actually see each other because the other person is on the other side of the CRT, looking back at you on it into another screen. All of the fighting games were set up like that, and I always used to feel it was a bit of a shame because I remember. So many, so many. Um, I was a big Virtua Fighter two player, and there were so many, you know, fun moments when I'd just be playing, and somebody would come up and put in their coin, and you know, a new challenger appears or whatever it was, and then you start playing for a while, and then you, you know, you get chatting, and of course, you know, you, mm-hmm. there you go, you made yourself a new friend. Um, As so it was always a bit of a shame in Japan when you do that, and then there'll be somebody that all of a sudden it says a new challenger appears, and then you know they'll totally whip your ass. <laughs> and, you, and you don't even see them, then you're just like, oh, 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 that's the end of my game. Oh, oh, oh well, and you just stand up and walk away and feeling disappointed. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's more fun when the person can be right next to you somehow rather than sort of sitting in front yeah. of you. So it sort of removed that social aspect, which was a little bit sad, I felt.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I loved being shoulder to shoulder with, with people that I barely knew. And, um, it was just such an icebreaker in and of itself, you know, it was a little bit, you know, I was kind of socially awkward when I was a kid, but it was accepted. If you can put a quarter in, you're part of the game now. So bam, you know, that, that was the icebreaker. Um, So, um,
1: what are your, what's in your sort of, um, you know, your hall of fame as far as arcade game sound goes? Are there any you know, standouts that from memory that you remember, wow, I specifically remember that sound or or this music or this moment in this game where you heard this or any, any moments like that? I have lots. I'll let you I go have, first.
0: Wow, I have a couple. Um, I'm definitely thinking about some of these big games. So, for example, ooh, Ferrari, Ferrari F355, which mm-hmm. was – Uh, an arcade game. I remember I first saw this game in the Philippines and it had three screens up in front. Mm. But more importantly, it had sound coming in from the front and the back.
1: Oh, wow. Cool. So
0: it's like, ooh, you you could hear the sound, but you could also feel the sound like coming from behind you. It's the rumble of the car while you're sitting in the seat. It's just such a a cool feeling playing this game. It's more than wow. just a a simple arcade racer. It was like, yes, this is a car simulator. It sounds awesome.
1: <laughs> that's great. That's yeah. cool. What about for yeah, you? Had, oh, I've got so many. This is going to take a long time, but I that so many. Uh I mean, I guess in sort of rough chronological order, um uh the the earliest memories that I have of game audio in in video game arcades was Pac-Man those those brup, 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 brup kind of sounds as Pac-Man is going along eating the? It's just so. I mean, it's perfect. It's so. It's so cool. And the, when you think about the the noisy arcade as well, it just sort of comes through so clearly. And the the, the design intent and the the feeling of that brup, brup, brup kind of sound as the as the Pac-Man is is eating all of the of the the dots was was just fantastic. Um. A lot of those like uh I don't know if you ever heard it in an arcade, but Defender and Tempest, those oh, yeah. Williams games, they sounded just amazing in the arcade, the with, with the bigger speakers in the mm. in the big cabinets. Especially um uh Tempest is amazing, but Tempest is actually one of my all-time sort of favorite games in terms of the the uh the, the quality and the concept and the execution. I I just you know, so far ahead of its time, but uh, Defender specifically, Defender had this kind of really cool, um, you know, the sound effects in Defender that like this and the uh, yeah. the way that they did that with these really, really short wavetables, um, it's really cool. If you want to actually make an explosion that sounds like the Defender explosion and anybody who's played Defender will know exactly what I'm talking about that. Um, Uh, It's quite easy, actually. All you need to do is take a very, very short wavetable of noise and then just slow it down, like play it Mm -hmm. looped and gradually slow it down, and you get that kind of really grainy, sandy kind of explosion sound that just sounds fantastic. So, yeah, definitely those early uh, arcade games are are a standout in terms of uh, uh, arcade game sound that I can remember. And then later on, um, 1942... By is it Taito, made nineteen. No, that was a
0: Capcom game. Capcom was
1: it? That okay. was Capcom. Yeah. Yeah. You remember? I don't know if you remember, but I don't remember anything about the music. I don't specific. I remember that the, the the shooting sound with this kind of this kind of, kind of kind of sound, but the um when you start the level, it has this kind of sound like that. I don't know if you remember, if you've ever played
0: 1942. Yeah, let's see. It's like... That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's like kind of this military sort of rhythm to it. Kind of a Morse code kind of thing. Yeah. That was,
1: Yeah. I, that, that, I, I loved that sound and I, used to con- I convinced myself that there was actually some kind of pattern to it, that it was, it was following some kind of pattern that, like Morse code, that would signal to you, you know, when the enemies were coming. Probably not. <laughs> Probably it was just a – but it's a really cool example in that specific case of game audio sound design. I don't think that there's enough of this, to be honest. Vince, I'm, I'm going to drop my <clears throat> mic right now and say I don't think that there's enough of this. It's kind of pointless, you know? It, like, it doesn't really serve any purpose. There's no real point to it. <laughs> it like, there's nothing specifically in the world, the, the world, air quotes, world, you know, when you've, when you've got your little plane down the bottom and you're flying over the ocean. I, I don't think you, you take off from a carrier in 1942. I think the mm. 1940. The the sequel to 1942, I think you take off from a carrier. Maybe you do. I think that's right. Maybe you do. Yeah, Yeah, anyway. It's kind of pointless. You know, like there's nothing in the gameplay or in the um, um, visually that would sort of justify having this sound at the beginning. But for some reason, it's there. For some reason, the sound designer just thought, okay, let's just put it in there. Maybe there is a a deeper kind of game design or some kind of mechanic that it's connected to but that it's in there and it doesn't seem to be useful for anything that i could think of but as a player you just get used to that sound playing there and you don't really care about the reason but it just sort of melts into the overall experience and it doesn't stand Mm -hmm. out as being pointless or you know it it becomes part of the experience just because of the repetition of it and it just it's just there every time you play i I think we need more of that (laughs) just sort of pointless sound design decisions that don't necessarily connect to anything visual or in the game mechanics realm of a video game but a player can just sort of latch on to as being sort of a signature sound for a certain moment in a video game i agree with you there
0: um like sometimes it's easy to get caught up in making sure that things are connected and motivated. Right. And, right. Um, and we see plenty of enough examples of things that are unmotivated and immediately draw attention as being wrong that, okay, it's good to make sure that things are properly motivated. But it's also really nice to just have something that just is. And right. by virtue of that draws you in, which I think is exactly what it does, because, you know, I'm very confident that what I just hummed is actually that that was the rhythm of
1: 1942.
0: Right. right, right. Do, do, do 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 You know, it's like I'm very certain that that's what it was. <laughs> yeah. And it's like uh that connects me to the game and really that's what you want with a game whether you're working in audio or in art or narrative you want to establish that connection and be a fixture in that player's mind and and then they think of that and they think fondly of it and yeah precisely yeah.
1: and i th- i think that um it's i uh, it's a it's an important thing to remind ourselves every now and then of especially as game audio professionals because when you think about it our craft and our art form of audio for video games. I mean, honestly, we're, we've come so far. I mean, we, we have so much capability. And as an art form, we have so much sophistication in what we do. When you think of like the, vo- the most basic, lowest level, simple game audio specification for a video game, even that, you know, like the, the very most basic level of it, even that is at an incredibly high level when you look at the the overall history of audio in video games. And so mm-hmm. there's so much sophistication. The bar is very high. We all do our very best to provide excellent game audio that is, you know, consistent with the design, it is artistically consistent with the visuals. Uh, the emotional intent is delivered. You know, that, and this is even before we talk about things like, uh, you know, reactive game scores where the music will change depending on what you're doing, et cetera, et cetera, or spatialization mm-hmm. or any of these kinds of amazing things that we're doing these days. Everything is so advanced and we're so good at it that the idea of, you know, it just seems preposterous to, to think of just, oh, let's just put in a sound effect because it's cool. Let's just put it in there. You know, it doesn't. Mm-hmm doesn't mean anything. It doesn't connect to anything. It has no visual connection. It has no game design, emotional or game mechanic purpose. But I'm just going to put it in there. And I think uh, um, we have to be a little bit careful that in our sophistication and in our advanced approach uh, to designing game for sound, uh, sorry, designing sound for games, that we don't you know, lose that kind of, I, I don't know, I guess you could call it innocence, I suppose. I I don't know. Maybe, maybe whoever you know did the sound Mm. for Capcom. Maybe the uh, whoever did the sound for 1942. Rather, maybe the director of the game just said, you know, okay, I want something to sound like Morse code here. So can you just do that for me? And of course, I doubt that. Being a Japanese video game, I seriously doubt that it would have been some kind of spontaneous, you know, spur of the moment kind of decision to just drop in a sound there for 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 just for the fun of it. Um, But I think yeah, we should we should. We should not lose sight of the the fun in just dropping in sounds sometimes that aren't connected to anything, just to to serve as a signature moment. There's Mm -hmm. quite a lot of those, really, when you think about it. I remember another one was, uh, did you ever play Virtua On? I did. I I didn't really play that much. Um, I think mostly because I
0: got my ass kicked the few times that (laughs) I played it in the arcade. (laughs) Right. And You know that that's one of those big machines. So it, it yeah. cost me more than twenty five cents in order to play that game. So I, I kind of shied away from that. But I always right. thought, wow, it looked cool.
1: Right, right, yeah. And it was it had this sort of twin joystick thing. So it was a bit intimidating because yeah. you put your money in, and you know you just drop straight into it, and you're expected to be able to to be able to fight in these big, um, you know, big fighting mechs. Um, but Virtua on had a, had a bunch of those kinds of sounds as well. Um, the robots talking, like I, I remember that when you, when you win, when you start or when you win a round, you get this kind of kind of <laughs> voice like that that would just not really particularly mean anything. And like, why would this huge mech be talking? Um, but just very, very such a characteristic kind of moments that becomes sort of ceremonial, like the 1942 mm-hmm. intro. I like that word, ceremonial. I think having ceremony in
0: video games is actually really important. Like having a, a ritual that's actually right. there that you can connect to, not just, right. oh, like a, a series of individual things, but it all connects together in this ritual or this ceremony that yeah. draws you in and keeps you in there
1: and sometimes even if it's a bit pointless you know i think that's the that's the other fun aspect of of what we can do with video games i think yeah, one last definitely. yeah definitely yeah. yeah
0: i mean there's there's always something arbitrary about it but it's okay and if, if if anything the pointlessness of it sort of accentuates uh the overall impact of when you are actually drawn in you, you right. latch onto that in and of itself rather than you know connecting it to some other thing of of meaning that exists somewhere else in the world.
1: Right, right, exactly. I've, the, the other um, one thing that I wanted to mention about uh, arcade sound that really left a lasting impression and that sort of helped, has, has um, helped form the way that I approach sound design now as well um, is uh, in Virtua Fighter, one of the, the, the classic, there's two absolutely classic sound effects in Virtua Fighter that any Virtue Fighter um, player would recognize. Number one, of course, is, the, is when you put the coin in, it goes, da-da-da. And then when you yeah. press the one, the one player button, it goes, da-da-da, and it goes up a tone. Yes. Nice. nice. I love that. Yeah, that's, that's so iconic. Not so much that, though. The, the one that I wanted to bring up was um, when, you, when, when the opponent is down, in Virtua Fighter, what you can do is I think it was like you, you push up and press kick and your player yep. will do this sort of jumping slam move where they'll they'll jump up and they'll slam down on the on the opponent with their, you know, leg or their knee or, or whatever. Yep. And um the sound of that would always sound like a kind of it's like a mixture of a punching bag and a girder. <laughs> <laughs> like a like a, a steel girder, you know. And it would make no sense at all that it would sound like that. Like, what, whatever the, the ground surface, whenever I used to play Jackie, and whenever Jackie would like jump up and slam down on top of an of a opponent that's on the ground, you'd get this sort of clank kind of sound like a girder. And it, that's another thing that really um, was so memorable because I remember laughing with my friend, it's like, oh, that sounds so cool. But it's so ridiculous that it just sounds like you've just, you know, hammered a, a, an anvil with a with a metal sledgehammer or something like that, <laughs> clank, <laughs> like that when, when you hit the ground. But then, this is the the fun aspect of game audio, and uh, that you know you see it and you hear it. But even if the sound that you're hearing is quite disconnected and quite unrealistic for what you're looking at, because it is matched together with a visual action. You just believe it anyway, you know. <laughs> just mm-hmm. like, you just like you don't you don't you just think it's cool, but you don't necessarily question like why would the sound of somebody you know stomping heavily onto somebody else onto a body sound like you know a sledgehammer on an anvil? <laughs> it doesn't really doesn't make sense, but it doesn't matter, you know. <laughs> That's the cool thing. You know, I'm
0: going to jump in with this and say I actually feel like that kind of is motivated though. So, mm. because Virtual Fighter is a weird game, it right. actually um, there's a lot of moves in there that are realistic. Like you know, when Virtual <laughs> Fighter came out, it's like okay, it's 3D. It feels like these guys are moving in 3D space in a realistic way, as opposed to you know, in 2D animation world. Right, but, um, you know, more or less, but jumping was actually one of the places where Virtual Fighter was definitely not realistic when yeah, you jump a, up in the air yeah. and actually land on them. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's they're jumping up ten feet, fifteen feet, and not yeah. just that, it seems like gravity is turned off for uh, a second so, yeah. or so, yeah it's a <laughs> it, it's it's like, a,
1: it's a, a loose inter- a loose interpretation of physics, shall we
0: say <laughs> <laughs> and and it's. But it's so funny because, like, everywhere else in the world, uh, you know, you're on the ground, you're, you know, punching and kicking, you get floored. It seems like, oh, that's sort of real world-ish if exaggerated a little bit for the visual impact. But then that whole, oh, I'm going to jump in the air and land on you with a knee? It's like, yeah. oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> you're just floating up there and just waiting for him to fall. And then uh, – I'm so from that perspective, it seems like it makes sense that the sound would be that much more exaggerated and be right. like that girder or I-beam or whatever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, I, absolutely. Unlike, um, the, um, unlike the example with the, the start of the 1942 level, in the case of Virtua Fighter, all those sounds were, yes, absolutely. I mean, it was about the impact and it was about the drama. So they were very much more intentional, not like, um, you know, the 1942 sound, which sort of sounds like it could, could have been, um, uh, well, less intentional in, in terms of not being obviously connected with something that you're looking at. But with the Virtua Fighter sounds, yeah, for sure. It, it, was, about, it was clearly an intentional choice to make it just sound full of impact. But I, I can, you can just imagine that the, the, the sound designer and the game director um, was it Yu Suzuki? It was, wasn't it? Because it was the aim 2 Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Of course, I don't know if Suzuki-san was involved with the the sound design, but you can you can just imagine that the, the the young sound designer coming with this kind of, dish sound, and then you know the the, the director saying, oh, you know, it's, it needs more impact. We've got to give it more impact. So they come back the second time with a, sound. It's like no, no, we we need even more impact. Can you can you just like make it sound like you know yeah make it sound like a, a like an anvil has dropped onto a train track and like cling, there we go that's it that's the one we want <laughs> yeah
0: oh <laughs> uh, I, I can i have been in some of those conversations so i it's funny because it's real it's so right. real to me oh. <laughs> that's
1: right yeah that's right yeah there's so many um uh, other examples that i can bring to mind as well of uh, of like classic classic um uh video game sounds but uh um, for sure, there's a lot to learn from video game sounds just in terms of, um, uh, you know, the the way that they would purposefully use transients and noise and just sort of noise floor to try and at least give you the sense when you're in this extremely noisy video game arcade, at least to give you the sense that you're enveloped and immersed in just the the game that is right in front of you. There's a mm. lot of really clever techniques that they use to do that. And of course the design of the cabinet you know where the classic cabinet has these big sort of sides uh to keep the screen darker and there's a top section and the speakers would generally be on top wouldn't they mm-hmm, uh, and then yeah. later on that later uh, sort of so you, you sort of have your head inside this almost like a um a booth a little sort of like a voting booth or something like that isn't it with the, the sound all around you and the and the the CRT in front of you mm. yeah it's a uh, if, if, wherever you are in the world, if you're listening to this and you have the opportunity somewhere in your city to experience, uh, um, arcade games in their original form, if you've not done that, if you're, uh, uh, if you're, you know, not of that generation or you've, you've never really had much experience with arcade games, uh, in their cabinets, then see if you can find a place to do it because, uh, there certainly is a lot to learn and a lot of just cool stuff, uh, to, to appreciate in, uh, In game audio in arcade games.
0: Mm -hmm. Here, here. Wow, we've been going at it for almost an hour now. So, oh god, there's so much that we could be going into. Like, oh, Apple and their uh, Apple's got their new computer. It's probably better if we wait until Mike is back on the show, since he is the Apple user among us. Uh, Right, I would be interested in hearing his thoughts and all sorts of other things in the world of game audio, but. Um, Maybe we should just jump right to conspicuous consumption. So, uh, Alex, have you been checking out anything lately, games or music
1: or movie-wise? I have indeed, actually. Um, uh, It's always a fun thing when you discover a new band from an era that generally you consider yourself fairly familiar with. And there's like this new band with all of these great albums and great songs that you'd never heard of before. And I had that this week. Um, The band is called Scritti Politti. Have you ever heard of Scritti Politti? No. No. Okay. I have a I have a very very strong recommendation for you. There is an album by Scritti Politti. So Scritti Politti is a a British pop group from the mid eighties, and um, there is an album. By Scritti Politi called Cupid and Psyche 85. Okay. And yeah. I would strongly recommend you go and listen to this and listen to all of the songs. Don't skip through them. Uh, and remember as you're listening to it that it was 1985. The reason why is okay. if if you like synthesizers and you like the sort of the mid-80s era, so basically the Yamaha DX7 in its golden era, 1985, mm. um, uh the the extremes that they push the programming of the DX7 and the sequencing, because I think in 1985, that was before – that would have been before, like, you know, the Atari ST and, and Notator and Cubase and those. So it would have been hardware sequences, if I'm not wrong. Mm, yeah, Like the MC500 or the MC50 or some of the Yamaha uh, sequences as well. Listen to right. th- this album and you're you, when you listen to it, it'll sound like, oh, you know, if you imagine it as being like 1989 or 1990, uh, it it kind of you know it doesn't really sound that amazing, but if you remember, it's 1985, it will absolutely blow you away. And on top of all of that, the the just musically, aside from the the technical aspect of it, the, just musically, it is nuts. Like it, it's typical mid '80s pop music, but the the um the harmonies and the chord progressions are just really strange and yet huh. it's framed in this sort of um you know typical mid 80s 1985 sort of glossy glossy sound from that era produced brilliantly just in terms of the the general sound of the album it's it's a really really fascinating listen because you have all of these technically amazing elements combined with this bizarre bizarre sense of harmony and very, very good vocal performances and programming. And the mixing is, is just, you know, fantastic. Really fascinating listen. So highly recommended. Scritty Politti, Cupid and Psyche 85.
0: That is, yeah, that is really wacky to think about. Um, you know, this is new to me, so I'm going to check it out. But yeah, 85, uh, like MIDI hasn't been around for that long, at that, that time and yeah so it right. like, would probably be dealing with a lot of hardware right so okay cool i'm gonna check that out that's how about you crazy um, what what uh,
1: what have you been conspicuously consuming
0: um honestly i've been sort of going back to some older stuff um lately it's been I, i'm going to put some older movie on in the background while i'm dealing with some things Uh, But uh, there was actually a little bit of conversation happening in another music group where they were talking about this movie, The Red Violin, and Mm. expressing displeasure at how the soundtrack was actually executed in the movie. Okay. Um, So basically some mild, very, very mild spoilers. This is like very apparent right away. But basically the movie is about a red violin. And it tracks a couple of different people who played this violin. And this person online was basically expressing his displeasure at the fact that whenever someone is playing this violin, it just sounds like Joshua Bell playing it because Joshua Bell is Joshua Bell. Um, hmm. that, that That's cool. And uh, this person was saying uh, – it shouldn't be like that. All of these people are different. And it it just got me thinking about this. Is that really appropriate or inappropriate? I watched the movie again and I thought, honestly, that that was exactly right. Because the red violin, the, the central, quote, character, unquote, of the film hmm. is um, – steadfast in its identity throughout even as it interacts with different people in this movie world etc etc um and i just thought wow this is a really good film this is some really good music that goes along with threading this film and threading the, the stories of all the different people that are in this world uh, throughout Man. history so very good film. If you haven't watched it, I would highly recommend it. I think it's a, it's a beautiful film, really great acting, and a great soundtrack. I know it's not a video game, but it's,
1: it's so cool, honestly. I love it. That's great. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I'd have to check that out.
0: Well, I, I think you're <laughs> in for a treat, so I'm not going to do any more spoilers. It's a very mild spoiler anyway. It's, it's about a violin. So um, hopefully you enjoy it. I'd love to hear what you think. Cool.
1: Yeah, I'll see if I can check it out.
0: So cool. This has been episode 220 of the Game Audio Hour. Uh, You're listening to us on probably one of the various podcast platforms. And if so, thank you for doing so. If you'd like... um you can give us a review or subscribe to us so that you're always made aware of when the next episode drops. Uh, we're also going to be letting you know about that on Twitter. We are at Game Audio Hour. And you can always go to our website, GameAudioHour.com, that also points to our various presences on the Internet. Um, so, yeah. Oh, is that about it <laughs> god just like that intro earlier i'm kind of fumbling at the end here it's like is there anything else that i need to say i mean what oh, else just, do i need to say
1: no just like uh, just like your uh, abridged version of the intro you should just make an abridged version of the ending which is thank you bye <laughs> all right there it is
0: you uh, got is. it yeah thank you thanks for listening bye bye